This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hello, and thanks for joining the program today. We're following Namkar Pal's Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun, a commentary on another text titled Seven Points of Mind Training. As I've stated in our previous programs, mind training is at the heart of Buddha's teachings, for how else do we transform our current limited, deluded and suffering type of existence for one that is omniscient and free of all misery? We have to purify our mental imprints and change our mental habits and tendencies through some form of mental training. We can't just wish for enlightenment and then sit back and hope it will descend on us like snow on a mountaintop. That would be nice, but it's just not going to happen. One of the most important mind-training techniques is finding advantages in what might appear to be disadvantageous situations. In Buddhist lingo, turning adverse circumstances into the path to enlightenment. The one who is well realized in the spiritual path always welcomes difficult situations because they give him or her excellent opportunities to advance further. So such beings actually pray and look for problematical circumstances. Those of us who are less advanced, of course, run away from difficult situations and want everything to be easy, and that is the sign of our immaturity. The mind training teachings are therefore often focused on how to go about changing this tendency so that it doesn't matter what life throws at us. We are ready and willing to face it without turning away or giving in to minds of complaint and blame. We've reached the particular section of mind training like the rays of the sun that zeroes in on this with the instructive slogan Train consistently to deal with difficult situations. And Namkarpel lists five that you, we should pay attention to in particular. He says, Firstly, since even slight misbehavior towards the three jewels, your abbot, spiritual master, parents and so forth, who are all very kind to you, is extremely serious, you should be careful not to lose your temper with them. Secondly, as there are many opportunities for disturbing emotions to arise in relation to the members of your family, because you live with them all the time, this requires special training. Thirdly, you should train yourself particularly in relation to everyone, whether an ordained or lay person who appears to be your rival. Otherwise, even a small misfortune befalling them may create satisfaction in your heart. Fourthly, you should make a point of training yourself in relation to those who accuse you when you've done nothing against them, because there's a risk that, as the saying goes, if the fire of hatred burns, the moisture of compassion will dry up. Fifthly, you should pay special attention in your meditation to those people the mere sight of whom or the mere sound of whose names you dislike, even though they have done nothing against you. Because of this, there is a great danger of becoming angry with them. In previous programs, we have discussed the first three of these using particular instances and instructions to indicate how dangerous they can be for us and how we can transform them to our advantage. We're going to continue to have a look at the last two, but before that, let's just consider our motivation for the program today, as we usually do. In a teaching on bodhicitta motivation, the well-known nun Tipton Children has this to say, The self-centered thought is the one that says, 
I am the most important. My happiness matters more than anybody else's. My suffering hurts more than anybody else's and needs to be eliminated quicker than anybody else's. The self-centered thought makes us blind to our dependence on other living beings. We don't consider that our food and clothing and shelter and everything come from the hard work of others. We just take it for granted. We don't appreciate our teachers. We don't appreciate our parents. We just think everybody is there and we're entitled to all the benefit that we can get from them. Why? Because I am I. The world owes me something. With this mind, we have absolutely no awareness of the effect of our actions on other people because we are only concerned with what we are going to get out of something. So we act in any old way we want to get what we want and then we are so surprised when people are unhappy with us. It's true, isn't it? If we look at our motivations, they are completely selfish. I notice this a lot with the guys in prison that I work with. Often, when they get to prison, they are so angry at everybody. My parents let me down. My friends let me down. My lawyer let me down. It's everybody else's fault I'm in prison except my own. The world mistreated me and that's why I'm in prison. So I have a right to be angry at all these other people who betrayed me and made me wind up here. Now that way of thinking is a totally 100% dead end because we're giving away our power and saying, I'm not responsible for my life. If I blame everybody and I have no responsibility, then there's nothing I can do. Then I sit and drown in my anger and my bitterness for years and decades until my life ends. But my situation never changes, and I'm just as miserable and I'm still in prison. Whereas, the moment that we accept responsibility for our actions, then that means we can change what we do. We can make amends for what we did. We can change as human beings and create a better future for ourselves and for others. This is the key to why cherishing others and recognizing our interdependence with them is so vital to our own happiness and our own well-being. The self-centered mind that is always thinking me actually creates the cause for us to experience more and more suffering. If we do a little bit of analysis, just looking directly at our own life experience, this is nothing theoretical or intellectual, we just look at our own life, this becomes very clearly evident. Then we begin to get the courage to change ourselves, to take responsibility and to get in touch with our inner goodness, to bring forth our heart of kindness that cares about others. In doing so, we can completely turn our life around and live a life that spreads joy to others and brings goodness in the world and makes us feel better in the process as well as helps us to advance spiritually. And that is Tipton Children. Actually, even if we are not physically in prison but have every kind of pleasant material advantage, the selfish mind still creates a prison for us, doesn't it? The bars preventing us getting closer to long-term happiness are there and restrict us just as real iron bars would physically restrict us. So breaking those attitude and emotional bars is even more important than freeing ourselves from iron bars. If we were released from the internal bars formed by the self-centered attitude, the iron bars of prison would have no effect on our real freedom. They might restrict us physically, but emotionally and spiritually they would have no effect at all. We would be happy whether behind or before them. Let's therefore take a moment to break through the bars of our cage of selfishness 
by setting a bodhicitta motivation at least for this program. Thank you. And now returning to Nam Kao Pal. The fourth of the t- difficult situations he lists is one in which we are falsely accused of something we did not do. Of course, if we have done something we should perhaps not have and accused of it, best we own up and make amends in some way. But if falsely accused, what should we do? Nam Pal says, You should make a point of training yourself in relation to those who accuse you when you've done nothing wrong against them, because there's a risk that, as the saying goes, if the fire of hatred burns, the moisture of compassion will dry up. In other words, if we get angry with those who falsely accuse us, we could become very angry, and then all compassion for our accusers and their associates disappears. We may come to regard them as enemies and do things that create all sorts of negative karma for ourselves. In due course, that karma will ripen into so much suffering for us. We can see how this works out in the current climate of American politics, where the President of the United States prides himself on being a counterpuncher. In other words, whoever accuses him of anything disreputable, he, uh, he will hit back with derogatory statements and or demeaning factual inaccuracies, often close to outright lies. As you probably know, During his presidential campaign, a number of women accused Donald Trump of inappropriate sexual contact after the Hollywood access tape in which he appears to claim to have grabbed women by their genitals. Very recently, NBC's Megyn Kelly interviewed three of these women and the Washington Post dissected the White House's response. Here is the article by the Post's Philip Bump, who writes... In recognizing the women who stepped forward this year to call attention to sexual misconduct by powerful men, Time magazine was deliberate in underscoring the role that President Trump played in the movement. It quoted NBC's Megyn Kelly on the subject. I have real doubts about whether we'd be going through this if Hillary Clinton had won, she said, of the sudden push to publicly report inappropriate behavior. Because I think that President Trump's election in many ways was a setback for women but the overall message to us was that we don't really matter. On Monday, she took that argument to its logical conclusion, interviewing several of the women who stepped forward late last year to describe alleged inappropriate behavior by Trump. I put myself out there for the entire world and nobody cared, former Miss USA contestant Samantha Holvey said of her decision to go public with her accusations last year. Let's try round two, she added. The environment's different. Let's try again. The White House quickly issued a statement in response to the interview. These false claims, totally disputed in most cases by eyewitness accounts, were addressed at length during last year's campaign, and the American people voiced their judgment by delivering a decisive victory. The timing and absurdity of these false claims speaks volumes, and the publicity tour that has begun only further confirms the political motives behind them. That is a remarkable statement that's worth breaking out and assessing line by line. And that's what Bump does. He starts off with, These false claims, totally disputed in most cases by eyewitness accounts, and writes, The White House has consistently argued 
that the allegations against Trump are to a word untrue. This argument was repeated by Trump and the White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders in recent months. The Washington Post evaluated each of the accusations against Trump last month. In eight of the 13 situations we assessed, the allegations were supported by the women having contemporaneously described Trump's actions to friends. In two of those eight cases, there were rebuttals offered by Trump that extended beyond a simple denial. One involved Trump's former butler rising to his defense. The other was an uncorroborated story from a British man who had once made sweeping allegations of child molestation against members of the British Parliament. Now, leaving the Washington Post for a moment, we can also recall how at one campaign rally, Trump attacked Jessica Leeds, who had accused him of putting his hand up her skirt on an airplane trip. He said, to the delight of at least some of the crowd, Believe me, she would not be my first choice. That I can tell you. You don't know. That would not be my first choice. And later, in an affected voice, he sang, When you looked at that horrible woman last night, you said, I don't think so. Which kind of admits that he did it, don't you think? Believe me, she would not be my first choice for putting my hand up a woman's skirt to complete the sentence, implying that his au fait with that type of behavior. Or am I making a false accusation here? In any case, to return to the Washington Post's dissection of the White House response, the next phrase the Post looks at continues from these false claims, totally disputed in most cases by eyewitness accounts, and it goes, were addressed at length during last year's campaign. The Post article comments, This is subjective, certainly. The allegations began to surface after the second presidential debate in October 2016, during which Trump was asked if he's ever done the sorts of things described in a 2005 Access Hollywood tape that had come to light after it was published by the Post a few days before. In the tape, Trump is heard boasting about grabbing women's genitals. Trump denied ever having physically contacted women against their will, prompting a number of women to come forward. The extent to which those claims were evaluated during the last month of the election is hard to measure. In October, we looked at the number of times the subject was broached on television compared to other subjects, like the investigation into Hillary Clinton's email server or hacked information released by WikiLeaks. Now, the Washington Post drew up charts showing the number of mentions per day on news shows, and they show that, in fact, mentions of Hillary Clinton and WikiLeaks were far more numerous than mentions of Trump and groped in the same period. Not that that is conclusive proof of anything. Then the Washington Post continues its dissection with the phrase, and the American people voiced their judgment by delivering a decisive victory. To this, the Washington Post says, Despite Trump's regular assertions to the contrary, his 2016 win was not decisive or a landslide. He won the Electoral College, yes, but with only 304 electoral votes, fewer than in seven of the ten previous presidential contests. A strong argument can also be made that the voice of the American people is better represented in the popular vote, the actual votes of Americans, than by the electoral vote, which is more like the voice of individual states. As Trump is aware, he lost the popular count to Clinton by nearly three million votes. Then the White House says, The timing and absurdity of these false claims speaks volumes. 
and the Washington Post analyzes, the claims are not demonstrably absurd and it's also not clear why the timing of their revival is significant. The accusations emerged only at the tail end of the election last year because, as noted, Trump de denied having engaged in such behavior during one of the most watched political moments of the year. That such accusations emerged during national political races has become a go-to defense in such situations. And the Post mentions another of its articles on the Roy Moore election to the Senate as an example. And then it moves to the next phrase of the White House defense. And the publicity tour that has begun only further confirms the political motives behind them. There's almost no chance that Trump will at this point suffer any political repercussions from the accusations, writes the Post. The point of maximum political leverage, if that was what the accusers and their supporters were aiming for, was before the election. The timing of any bad news can always be linked to some outside cause, if desired. In the same way that Trump's tweets are often framed by his detractors as efforts to mask some item of bad news that's been percolating, the timing of an assault accusation against the president can always be framed as an effort to undercut the administration. There's nothing about this particular moment that would make most objective observers think the revived accusations were an attempt to undercut Trump. Why now? Because the issue of sexual harassment and assault has become a massive force in American culture, powered by some extent by Trump himself. So, with this we can see how one who is accused may react negatively. I am, of course, not saying anything about the truth about the accusations. I do not have any proof that sexual misconduct did or did not occur. I'm just trying to point out what might unfold if we react negatively or angrily against accusations against us. Certainly, I do not think that, that Trump, whether innocent or not, comes out well in this situation. And the number of his accusers, their backups, and his reaction all seem to imply that he has not been wholly falsely accused. And the Buddha has something to say about people who say, I did not, when in fact they did. In fact, he shows us exactly how we should react when facing false accusations in a story behind verse 306 of the Dharmapada. The website buddhanet.net tells a story like this. In the twentieth year of the Buddha's ministry, two important events took place. The first of these was the conversion of the bandit Angulimala. The second happened at Savati, where some jealous ascetics tried to discredit the Buddha. And this is the story of the second event. The Buddha and his disciples were famous and respected religious teachers at Savati. Large numbers of people from the area came regularly to listen to their sermons and to offer them alms. However, not all the people of Savati were followers of the Buddha. There were many ascetics in the area who believed that their teachings were superior. These other leaders were very jealous when they saw more and more people going to the Buddha and his disciples to offer alms and gifts of robes and medicine. Soon, overcome by jealousy, they decided to do something about it. In Savati, there was a female wandering ascetic by the name of Sundari. She was young in age and bad in character. The ascetics planned to attack the character and reputation of the Buddha and the monks through this female ascetic. Sister, you must try to help us do something about the Buddha, they told her. He is attracting supporters away from us. Well, what can I do for you, Sundari asked. 
You can help us by visiting the Jetta Grove regularly to find out as much as you can about the Buddha. Find us a way we may try to win the people back to support us. Sundari visited the Jetta's Grove regularly to spy on the Buddha. She did not know the real purpose, an evil one, of the ascetics in asking her to go there. Now, after a time, the ascetics became sure that many people had seen Sundari going regularly to the Jetta's Grove. They killed her and buried her in a nearby ditch. Then they went to King Pasanadi of Kosala and reported that Sundari was missing and was last seen with a Buddha. Where do you suspect she is? asked the king. She may still be in the Jetta's Grove, great king, they replied. We're worried because she's never been known to remain very long after the Buddha has finished giving his sermon. The king said, then you must go immediately to search for her there. The ascetics pretended to search for Sundari in the Jetta's Grove. After searching for some time, they went to the spot where they'd buried her and dug up her body. Placing the corpse on a stretcher, they carried it back to Savati. All the way they shouted angrily at the tops of their voices, See, lords, see the work of these monks who call themselves holy people. They're shameless and wicked liars. See what they have done. They've committed sexual misconduct with poor Sundari, and then they've killed her to hide their crimes. The Buddha's disciples became frightened by these accusations and did not know what to do. But the Buddha calmly told them to control their fears. There was nothing to be frightened about since they were innocent of the crime. The Buddha advised them, The people will accuse you and scold you, but you will do nothing except to recite these words. Those who lie and those who deny what they have done are equal in their evil deeds and both suffer. Then be patient. The people will see how calm you are and will grow tired of scolding you. Within seven days, the shouting and accusations will subside. The disciples heeded the Buddha's advice and people soon began to ask each other why the Buddha and his disciples were so calm. They remembered that the Buddha and his disciples were virtuous and that they had never been known to commit any evil crime. Someone else must have murdered poor Sundari, they cried. It's impossible that such compassionate religious teachers could have done it. In the end, the shouting stopped and the Buddha used this incident to give some advice to his disciples on how to endure abuse with patience. When harsh words are spoken to a bhikkhu, let him endure with an unruffled mind. After some time, the king discovered that the very ascetics who had warned of the evil deeds had committed the crime. When they were brought before the king, they confessed their crimes in public and were punished accordingly. After the incident, the Buddha and his disciples became more honored and respected in Savati. Verse 306 of the Dharmapada, inspired by this story, goes like this. One who tells lies about others goes to Naraya. One who has done evil and says, I did not do it, also goes to Naraya. Both of them being evildoers suffer alike in the Raya in their next existence. And the Raya is, of course, hell. We can find another example of how to react to unjust accusations in the Jataka tale of Ksantivadan, the teacher of patience. He had renounced the world and became well known as a yogi who had spent his whole life in the development of patience. He lived in a kuti or hut in the forest of a king who was not exactly known for his patience. One day this king and all his harem decided to spend a day in the forest where Kasanti Vardin had his kuti. The king enjoyed sporting with his wives, watching them as they picked flowers, chatted and entertained him. 
All the while he was also drinking, and as time, by, time went by, he became drunk and fell asleep. Now that he was not watching them, his mistresses grew bored and wandered off into the forest, wantonly picking flowers and twigs from the trees and bushes and leaving a colourful trail behind them. In due course, they came to the hut where Kasanti Varden was meditating. He was sitting cross-legged under a tree, and the women were so impressed by his tranquillity, radiance and nobility that they sat in a circle around him, and after he welcomed them all, he started giving them a Dharma teaching on forbearance. Now in a while, the king woke and wanted to continue playing with his harem. Of course, they were no longer there, but a trail of flowers and twigs showed where they'd gone, so he gathered up his entourage and went in search of them. When he came to the hermitage of Kutsanti Varden and saw the whole harem gathered respectfully around the sage, he grew very jealous and angry, especially as the sage was pre preaching against sensuality and worldly pleasure, which was exactly what the women provided for the king. He accused Kutsanti Varden of being a fake renunciate, really only interested in winning over women, and snatching a sword started towards him. The women tried to intervene, but the king was so angry he would not pay any attention to them. He strode up to Kasanti Varden, ready to strike him. But the sage stayed peacefully and calmly sitting without showing any fear. In fact, he tried to appease the king with kind words and advice. But the jealousy and anger in the king's mind was so overwhelming that he raised the sword and chopped off the right hand the saint was holding out to him. Now the sage recognized that nothing could calm the king, so he fell silent. This enraged the king further, and he cut off the saint's left hand, both his arms, his ears, nose, and feet. Still, Kshantivadan preserved his composure, feeling great compassion for the king, who was creating such terrible karma for himself. The king then in his anger stormed out of the forest, but as he did, the earth shook, opened, and swallowed him up into a cavern of great flames. Kshantivadan was dying, but before he passed on, he told the king's entourage that he held no grudges and taught them about developing great patience and compassion. These stories tell us how the Buddha advised his disciples to interact with people who falsely accuse them. Now, we might not be at the advanced stage of Kshantivadan, but we can do our best to stay calm and not to say, take such accusations personally. There are, after all, coming from a deluded and ignorant mind, and we would do best to stay calm and use the situation to develop great patience and compassion as much as we can. And that is all we have time for today, as our time is up. Thanks for joining the program. Please dedicate any positive potential to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. I hope you'll tune in again next time. Thank you so much, and goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices, or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.